Good morning. It is so good to see all your bright, sunshiny faces today. I think it has something to do with the weather, um, which reminds me that the park is coming, and I'm super excited for that. Yes, it's my favorite time of year. Um, with that, I'm going to bring Jason up. All of the announcements and more can be found on our Facebook page and on our website, which is www.zionclairlake.org, for a full list of everything going on, because there was so much this month, we couldn't fit it all into one video. That's exciting. Um, so I'm going to pray for Jason, and then we'll, we'll get the show on the road. <laughs> are we like a, are we like a rodeo or something? <laughs> Howdy, partner. I feel at home. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, Pastor Jason and the message that you've given him. God, as you have asked us to do hard things for mm. you, um, this sermon is no different. And as hard as it can be to hear, God, you want what's best for us, and you have our best intentions on your heart, and we have our best intentions for you. So God, I just ask that you give us um, ears to hear this message, heart, soft hearts to absorb it and to hear it with grace, um, to know that it is hard and, and no one is, is immune to um, not sinning, God. We all fall short. And God, I just pray that you would um, lift us, that you would encourage us with this message, uh, that we can go out and be who you've created us to be, to bring you glory in all that we do, and even in our marriages. Um, God, you love marriage. You use it all the time as an analogy of how much you love your church. So God, I just ask that we would um, embody that vision that you have for it, uh, that we would be true disciples of you and true disciples of you in our marriages. God, we give you this day, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, welcome. If you're new with us or online, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to have you all here. I got to tell you, one of the coolest things, I was in last service in this one, we have so many new people that are coming to Zion. It's been so fun to see. Yeah. Um, so I was last service and this one, I was standing there, and I like to do my fist bumps in the spirit. That's a real thing, by the way. Jesus did it first. Uh, and I was waiting, and people were walking by, and I'm like, I don't know this person. I don't know this person. And then you have that one person that you think is new, and you're like, hey, how long have you been coming? Oh, like 20 years. And I'm like, oh, my bad. <laughs> uh, but it's been so fun to see all the new faces. And if you are new here with us, uh, do me a favor. You get a chance. Connect with Jennifer Colby, our adult ministries director. Jennifer, can you just give a, a wave? And um, we, we love to meet new people, and we're just so glad you are here. Um, we're in part five of our series called Unconvenience, the Breakthrough Life, where we've been looking at the challenging words of Jesus as he reframes what it means to love, follow, and obey God. Now, he's been reframing the Ten Commandments up to this point, and I'll be honest, it's tough. Sometimes following Jesus, Jesus has some hard things to say. Uh, even as I've been preparing this every week, I've had to come willing to say, God, what do you want to say to me? Where are the areas in my life where maybe I still need breakthrough? Are there areas in my spirit, in my heart, in my mind, in my body that I've not fully surrendered to you? And, and this has been one of those series that every week Jesus is challenging something new. Now, it's part of a much larger series event, a multi-series event that we've been doing going through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it started off talking about how murder the heart of murder is actually rooted in anger. Therefore, in God's eyes, anger and murder are the same thing. If you ever hated, you have murder in your heart. And that often, our anger can lead to pride and even our unwillingness to reconcile, to acknowledge our own sinful brokenness, 
comes from a place of pride. And when that pride kicks in, we only want our pound of flesh. We all know I've had, I've had those moments where I just want revenge. I just want to make sure that my, I get my rights instead of caring about others. And then last week we had a PG-13 message, and I know some people chose to stay home and watch online, and that's why we gave a heads up that it was PG-13. We were dealing with some rather adult content. And we talked about the hard stuff of adultery and lust, and that yes, some people, most people have never had an affair, but if you've ever lusted in your heart, in God's eyes, you've committed adultery. Therefore, the, the ground is level at the cross. All of us are on equal footing. While you may have never murdered somebody, you've probably, all of us, have hated somebody or said something in a mean spirit. In God's eyes, it's the same thing. You may not have had an affair, but you've lusted. All of us have struggled with lust in one form or another. And when you do so, in God's eyes, it's the same thing as adultery. Now, I want you to hear this because so often people associate church with shame. And everything we're saying here, remember, Jesus did not come to condemn but to rescue and deliver. Amen? And so instead of hearing through the lens of shame, yes, Jesus is saying hard things, but he's saying them so that we understand that you and me, that we understand that we all need Jesus. Every single one of us needs a Savior. No matter how righteous and holy you may look on the outside, inside we still have this struggle with sin, don't we? And I'll tell you, as I've been preaching each week, Every time there's that old saying that before you point a finger at one person, realize there's three more pointing back at you. I'm first realizing my own need for Jesus in this. I need Jesus now more than I did 30 some odd years ago when I gave my life to Christ. 32 years actually. Every day I'm reminded of my need for Jesus. Now, Jesus has just laid a smackdown on all the self-righteous people. All the people who say, well, I've never murdered. I've never had an affair. Well, again, if you've ever had anger, if you've ever lusted, in God's eyes, you need the Savior just like everybody else. Therefore, instead of seeing this as condemnation, see what Jesus is saying here is the ultimate hope. It's a God who restores and redeems, but first he has to reframe because it's so easy for us to look at the outward appearance of somebody and go, well, at least I'm not like that guy. Like Jake Lee, every time he looks at me, he's like, at least I'm not Jason, right? I mean, we all have those moments where it's easy to compare ourselves. And if you've ever noticed, whenever we compare ourselves with somebody else, we all put the bar pretty low, don't we? Well, at least I'm never murdering anybody. Way to go, buddy. Like, that's, that's not a big accomplishment. So when we looked at the unconvenienced life, it's choosing to put ourselves in the path of discomfort. That is the life of the disciple. It's choosing to say, Jesus, ex I'm exposing my heart. I'm exposing the things in my mind, the lies that I believed that have kept me from you. And I'm asking you to get into the uncomfortable places. How many of you have those rooms, those desk drawers in your house that you don't touch? You know what I'm talking about? You know the ones where you just pile everything? Maybe it's your garage and it's the place that shall not be named. Jesus wants to get into those areas of your life. He wants to get to the areas that maybe you're a little uncomfortable with. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning is another topic that can come with a lot of discomfort. We're going to be talking about the big D, divorce. And, and what I want you to hear is this is not about shame, but some of us need a biblical understanding of what God's heart is around divorce, remarriage, and what does that look like. And, and before we go further, some of you might check out 
because you're convinced I'm just going to come with more shame. I haven't brought shame this far. I'm not going to bring it now. Amen? So what I want you to hear is ultimately it's talking about God's restoration and desire for marriage. So as we look at this, some of you may need to kind of get your heart straight because maybe you're struggling in your marriage right now. Maybe your marriage is on its last leg. Maybe you are divorced and remarried and you've been carrying that guilt. Maybe you're struggling with even the, hey, I don't know what to do. We've just had an affair or there's something else going on. This message is for you. But even if you're not married, every single person in this room has been touched by divorce in one way or another, either because friends have gotten divorced, you got divorced, or you came from a divorced home. Would you all agree with that? So what does God have to say? Well, first off, is that we are all trapped. Only when someone realizes they're a prisoner can they be set free. All of us are trapped by something. Every single person here, me, you, it's part of our human condition. And therefore, we call these traps strongholds. And we need somebody to rescue us from our strongholds. That's found freedom in Jesus, and we call this breakthrough. That's what this whole series is about. It's the breakthrough life. How many of you want breakthrough in your life? Say amen. We need it. We need it to go into every aspect, but the only way that can happen is getting uncomfortable. And so if you feel uncomfortable today, I understand. I hope you hear Jesus' heart and my heart for you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are people of the book. You can get them on your, on your phone if you want to. If you're like me, I prefer a physical copy. Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, please come and see me or Jennifer Colby. We will get you a Bible. You need a Bible. We'll get, and if you can, Maybe you have like that old Bible like a grandma passed down and it's in this big, you know what I'm talking about, and it's King James. You're like, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. We'll get you a Bible you can actually read. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now this is the first time that Jesus is not going to reframe one of the Ten Commandments. There is no commandment of the Big Ten that talks about divorce. There's one talking about adultery and coveting, but not divorce. Jesus is actually going to reframe a teaching, a, a statement, a declaration from Moses to the Israelites while they wandered the desert after escaping Egypt. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here's the verse. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he then gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, the Pharisees, they loved to take certain statements and they'd build cases around it and they'd find loopholes so they could do corrupt things while still looking righteous on the, inside, on the outside. This was no exception. Now, I'm also going to address kind of a, an awkward thing in the room for some of you. The Bible talks from a male perspective for a reason. Notice it doesn't say if a woman chooses a divorce. We have to remember that the Bible was written in a specific context Roughly 2,000 to 3,500 years ago. When Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, that's 1,500 years after Moses. Moses was around sometime around, they think, 1,500 to 1,400 B.C. How many of you would agree that a lot happens over 1,500 years? Culture changes, right? In our culture, culture changes, it seems like, every six months. But in the world of the Bible, you could go hundreds of years and you would have a standard. Well, we're not just 1,500 removed years removed from Moses. We're another 2,000 years removed from Jesus. That means 
3,500 years has passed. Would we all agree that a lot has changed in 3,500 years? In fact, it's only been recently in modern history that women are finally starting to be seen as equal to men, whether in the workplace or in the church. And I want you to hear this. Women are made in the image of God. They always have been, always will be. Amen? They are not inferior. Men are not superior. We together are the image bearers of God's kingdom, of His glory and His power. We are meant to represent the world of God, His kingdom, together. But the Bible was written in a specific context. And in that world, women were seen as less than often property. They didn't have value. Now, here's the thing. We read the Bible sometimes and we go, wow, this seems barbaric, inhumane, and at least unenlightened. And I get it. I get why some people struggle with reading the Bible on topics, and this is one no different. Now, I want you to hear this. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Here's what I mean by this. Last time I checked, anybody here a Bedouin sheep herder traveling through Sinai? No one? None, none of us have ever done that. Anybody here speak Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek? No, we do have farmers. They, did ex- <laughs> they were there at the same time. We had farmers back then, but a lot has changed. The Bible is written to specific people in specific circumstances over a span of 1,500 years. And one of those is understanding how they viewed women. They saw women as, again, property. But more importantly, a woman was usually not allowed to work. The only connection, the only way a woman could make sure that she was secure, she either had to be married or had to depend on a family member. So... Here we have Moses saying, listen, if you issue a certificate of divorce for something that you feel is an uh, an indiscretion, you can send her away. But it was always assumed that she would remarry because if a woman could not remarry, she only had two choices, poverty or prostitution. Neither one of those are acceptable to God. So when we read that, instead of going, wow, the Bible's barbaric and it's ancient, yes, it is ancient, but what we miss is this. The Bible was actually countercultural. It's countercultural then and it's countercultural now. There was no expectation for anybody to take care of women, and yet God's word gave a provision to make sure that women were cared for and tended to in an ancient world, and it still does it today. In the time of Jesus, I would actually argue that Jesus was one of the first feminists. Jesus had female disciples, which was unheard of in the time. The first preachers of the gospel were not the apostles, the men. It was the women who came to the empty tomb and declared that Jesus had rose from the dead. I want you to think about that for a moment. The Bible has always given esteemed positions to women in a culture that saw women as devalued. We should be doing the same today. Women deserve our honor and our respect and our dignity. Amen? So, I say that because you're going to read this and go, wow, this seems really unclassy. But in the context of which it's written, it's actually incredibly powerful about what it says about women. All right. So, uh, so when Moses is writing this, he's writing to them because he's saying, listen, you're getting divorced. We get it. Issue a certificate so they can get remarried, so that they can be taken care of. Now, Jesus is addressing this with the Pharisees because 1,500 years after Moses, you had two schools of thought. They came from ancient rabbis. One was very conservative, Rabbi Shammai. It sounds like Laverne and Shirley, right? Shammai, 
Shemit, sorry. This, all you older people know what I'm talking about. The only one's like, what's Laverne and Shirley? Rabbi Shammai taught a conservative view that you could only divorce a woman if she had an affair. Uh, Rabbi Hillel was ultra-liberal and believed, and this was actually what it was called, that you could divorce a woman for any reason. It was called the any reason clause. And this is literally what it meant. If your wife was not a good cook, you could divorce her. If she got a wrinkle, you could divorce her. If a newer, better model came along, you could divorce her. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus knows this. Now, again, remember, it's connected to last week. Just like murder and anger were connected with pride, divorce is connected to adultery and lust. And the Pharisees tried to find a loophole around this by they liked Hillel's teaching because he gave them the ability to have an out. Hey, if you want a divorce, you can divorce them for any reason as long as you give them a certificate. Now, here's the thing. There are those then and there are those now who try and have the appearance of being righteous but are actually corrupt inside. They've always existed. They existed in the world of Jesus. They exist in the church today. They're the people who look super spiritual on the outside, but on the inside, they're super corrupt. I've been one of those people, if I'm honest. I've had moments where I've put on a great facade, but I was really far from God. So they looked for these loopholes, and in the process, what they were doing was really revealing their heart. Now, about 15 chapters after this, 14 chapters, Matthew chapter 19, we have an encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees. And they want to trap Jesus again, so they ask him this question. Now remember, there's these two school of thoughts. One, divorce can only be permitted if a woman has an affair. The other, for any reason. So here's what they say. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. You don't have to turn your Bibles there. Keep them in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're actually quoting the any reason clause. They're wanting to know, is it okay to do that? They're trying to trap Jesus. Now, what did Jesus reveal to us last week? The reason why we have affairs is because we have lust in our hearts. The reason why adultery exists is because lust exists. Adultery is the symptom. The real problem is lust. These Pharisees thought that by issuing a divorce decree that they weren't, adult, they weren't adulterers. But what was the real issue? Lust. They wanted something that wasn't theirs, so they got rid of their wives so they could get somebody new. So Jesus sees this. All right, Jesus is countercultural then, and he's countercultural now. I think we would still agree that divorce has been a problem and is a problem in the world today. Now, how many of you have heard the popular statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce? By show of hands, how many of you heard that? It's actually not a true statistic. It was a projection, not actually one that was verified with stats. And I'm going to get to in a little bit later in this message about what the real stats are. But another one that I've often heard is that there is more divorce in the church than there is in the world which I've heard that being said is, wow, Christians are really failing at this marriage thing. Now, I want to tell you this is a personal message for me because my wife is divorced. Many of you didn't know that. She was married for four years to a man who had multiple affairs, even had a child with another woman. She tried to make it work. And I'll also tell you that the first five years of our marriage were working through her processing the pain of her divorce. How many of you would agree that divorce is painful? It causes heartache, doesn't it? So Jesus talks about divorce, and we need to talk about it, but we don't want to do it through the lens of shame. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 5, verse 32. The law, Moses said this, but I tell you, 
that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, that seems pretty cut and dry. The only reason for divorce is adultery according to Jesus. But I want to reread these verses again because I guarantee you some of you in this room read right past a key phrase in there that you missed because you've probably heard it so many times, but you missed the point. Let's read it again. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Notice the language change there. If a man divorces his wife for something other than sexual immorality, he is victimizing her, causing her to sin by divorcing her. Now, what is he talking about? Why is she the victim? I mean, if she didn't do it, why is she still at fault? Well, here's what's happening. Again, in the ancient world, in the world of Jesus, women could not divorce. They also could not rarely hold land. They couldn't hold titles. And so if a woman got divorced, she was left to do one of two things to provide for herself, either prostitution or poverty or remarrying. Well, the best option of those three is remarriage. Would you agree with that? But remarriage is not what God designed. God designed for marriage to be a union that lasts for the rest of your life here on earth. So by doing that, you have now made her a victim of adultery. And if a man marries a woman who was victimized in adultery, he also becomes an adulterer. Here's the thing. He's forcing her to sin. But again, Jesus doesn't come to bring condemnation. He comes to bring restoration and healing. If she's the victim, why is she guilty of adultery? That seems unfair and cruel. At least it does to me. She didn't choose it. So why is she committing a sin? Well, these are big questions. And I believe we need to take the words of Jesus seriously when we look at divorce. We need to look at the words of Jesus seriously and realize that God cares about divorce and marriage. But we also need to see the bigger context of Scripture in the Bible. So, first things first. Marriage was designed by God to be a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. Let me say that again. Marriage was designed by God to be a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. God created marriage. The very first thing that happens in Genesis after Adam and Eve are created is a marriage ceremony. Marriage is meant to convey God's love for His people his church. I want to rephrase Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, 33. Husbands are supposed to love and cherish their wives like Christ loved the church, sacrificially. And wives are supposed to respect their husbands. Now, uh, by show of hands of you married people, how many of you married people would agree that marriage takes work? All hands better be up right now. <laughs> If you're saying it doesn't, then we need to have a different conversation because that means your marriage needs work, right? So my wife and I had, uh, if you were on Facebook, we had a little altercation this week over a toilet. It's a true story. We, 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 had, we got into a, a disagreement over a toilet. My wife had heard the toilet running, and she's, she put a thing on it making sure it kept on running, right? It, it didn't seem to be turning off. And so she, she shut it off or turned it off, put some toilet paper on top of the lid and some books. And she's like, Jason, we need a new toilet. Well, me being the man and the one who's going to be responsible for doing it, I go and I let it sit there for a day. And then I, I flushed it and it wasn't running still. It just did, it did what a toilet's supposed to do. No problems. So me being the man, I went upstairs and said, babe, the toilet's fine. 
That was my first mistake. I went, once down, went downstairs to watch TV and go about my manliness, right? So I'm sitting there, and she comes down, and, and she goes, um, yeah, we need to talk about that. I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> we need to talk about this. Um, it felt like you discounted my experience. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that you didn't have that. But, and then I use the word opinion, which, by the way, never tell your wife's experience as an opinion. It's an experience, not an opinion. She corrected me after the first service. That's why I know that. <laughs> and I told you marriage takes work, yo. <laughs> so I, I, I'm like, no, it's running fine. And it, we don't need a new toilet. And she's, she's like, we need a new toilet. I'm like, we don't need a new toilet. So what do I do to prove my point like a loving, sacrificial husband? I then take my wife over to the toilet and flush it three times to prove my point. Every flush is like an exclamation point of, I'm right. See? It ended in tears. Hers, not mine. And, and there was anger. And there was hurt. And finally, we kind of calmed down. And she realized, she's like, I'm sorry. It just felt like you were discounting me. And I wasn't meaning to do that, but I was. Wasn't intentional, but I still was. Well, we finished, and she's like, well, you, well, at least be on your radar. Will you at least keep an ear out so that if you hear it continually running, you know it's a problem? I'm like, sure. And so we part ways. Well, I'm doing lunch with my buddy Scott Lester. Now, I've told many of you I'm not handy at all. And Scott and I are talking, and I was sharing the story, and, you know, at some point I'm going to need to replace it. And he goes, hey, why don't we replace the toilet? I'm like, that's a great idea. So Scott came and replaced the toilet for me because I don't know what I'm doing. And, and my wife and I said nothing. Said nothing to my wife. She came home from work. About 45 minutes come by, and all I get is this text with a thing of the toilet and her saying, thank you for my new toilet, heart emoji. Now, when was the last time you had a heart emoji with a throne? <laughs> like, it was like a real thing. And then she posted this very beautiful thing, and I was grateful for it. But here's why I bring this up. Marriage, we have conflict in marriage all the time. And it's not about how well you start, it's about how well you end. We had a bad moment. You're going to have those in every marriage. It's not about that bad moment, it's what you do after that moment. Does that make sense? And I want you to think about how many marriages never thrive, never get into a place of healthiness because they continue to live in the bad moment instead of moving into the holy moment. Now you wouldn't have thought, hey, Jesus is actually talking about more in divorce here. He's actually talking about marriage and a heart behind marriage. All right, listen to what Jesus' response in Matthew 19. Don't turn to your Bibles. This is Jesus' response to the Pharisees asking the question about who has the right to marry or to divorce. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will be, become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Excuse me. Jesus is quoting directly from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The first thing that happens after Adam and Eve are created is a wedding ceremony uniting Adam and Eve as husband and wife to co-manage God's creation. You and I in marriage are still meant to co-manage God's creation. It is a task that we do together as a holy calling that God is giving every single one of us. This also tells us that before the law came into being, God made the institution of marriage. Marriage is not a man-made institution. It's a kingdom one. Marriage is a kingdom institution given by God. That's what makes it holy. Not a piece of paper. 
not the United States of America, not any government. What makes marriage holy is the God who created it. Can I get an amen? Now, Matt Chandler describes marriage as the mingling of souls. It's two separate people bringing their brokenness, experiences, personalities together, trying to do holy things. Now, the Pharisees then say this, Why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send our wives away? Now, this is actually kind of a silly thing. This is the equivalent of someone saying, Hey, Jesus, don't blame me. Moses told us to divorce our wives. This is also the equivalent of someone saying something like, I was praying and God told me that my wife doesn't make me very happy, so I should divorce her. Or someone saying, I was praying and God said, you know, I married the wrong person, so I need to divorce them so I can get a better husband. No, God did not say that. How do I know that? Because God does not contradict himself and God hates divorce. So if you are struggling in your marriage and you feel like God is letting you off the hook, that's not what marriage looks like in the kingdom. But there are provisions for marriages to end. And so Jesus says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Moses did not command it, he permitted it because of the hardness of heart. Now, at the center of every divorce is hard-heartedness. Whether it be the person who had an affair or the person who ended the marriage, a hard heart is always at the center. But there's something else we missed here that you may glance over because, again, we don't catch these references that Jesus brings. The Pharisees knew the story of Israel. And if you've ever read the book of Exodus, God delivered the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, from Pharaoh in Egypt. And every time that Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he refused to let them go. And it said this, because Pharaoh's heart was hard. Jesus just called the Pharisees Pharaohs, oppressive rulers. Hard-heartedness is what leads to divorce. And Jesus knows this. If you tell, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another person commits adultery. So why is the victim, the person let go, committing adultery? Here's the answer. Because God intended for marriage to be a lifelong physical, emotional, and spiritual commitment that should only be broken through death or the breaking of a covenant through adultery. Divorce is breaking something sacred. It breaks God's heart and it should break ours. This is why the person who is divorced when they enter into another relationship is still committing adultery. It's not because God sees them as an adulterer, but they've been forced into a position of sin. Now, here's the other part. Um, if you're single, we have people who are not married in the church. And I got to tell you, the church does a horrible job preaching and teaching on singleness. What Jesus says next actually is something for us. And the Pharisees say, or the 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 disciples start off by saying, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. That got extreme super fast. Like Jesus says some hard things. You're like, well, we should probably just never marry then. No, but then listen to what Jesus says next. This is for all my single people here. Single by choice or people who are single because they haven't found the right person. Not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. Eunuchs are people that are neither male nor female, either through castration or physical birth. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Jesus acknowledges that marriage is difficult, but it's also not for everyone. Not everyone is called to be married. And I want you to hear this if you are single and married. We are not defined by our marital status. Our identity is not whether we are single or married, and it's found in Jesus. Amen? That is your identity. And Jesus, God did some pretty amazing things through single people, you know, like Jesus. So instead of feeling like a second-class citizen if you're single, you actually, God might be preparing you to do even greater things than a married person can do because you can do things freely. You have more opportunity to have a bigger kingdom influence, and we need to celebrate that. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that. The Apostle Paul gives another grounds for divorce, and I think we need to hear this as well. Because Jesus said that you can only divorce for sexual immorality, but the Apostle Paul adds some, revealing more of God's heart around marriage and couples. Now Paul is talking to Gentile Christians, and in the Gentile world, men could divorce, women could only leave their spouse. It was actually said that a a Gentile, a Roman man, could divorce his wife if she gave out a copy of the house key. True story. So here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 11. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. He's realizing he's just re-quoting Jesus here. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But then he goes on to say this. But I, not the Lord, not Jesus, say to the rest of you, this is still inspired by the Holy Spirit, is still reflective of God's heart. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. In other words, you can't divorce somebody simply because they're not a Christian. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. When I do premarital counseling, I say hard things to people. Now, there is a trend that's happening in the church today of Christians marrying non-Christians. This isn't new. Now, that's not what Paul's talking about. This was first century church. They were already married when one of them became a Christian. Here's the warning that I give to couples where one is a Christian and one is not. I encourage them to really rethink it, and here's why. Usually, they'll say something like this. Oh, but Jason, they're really supportive of me going to church. They think it's great that I have faith. You should want to be with somebody who not only wants to follow Jesus with you and wants to grow with Jesus with you, but they want to help you become a better follower of Jesus, not just tolerate you following Jesus. Why is it that so many Christians think, well, but you don't understand, I love this person. I get that. But you should love Jesus more. You should want somebody who's going to push you in your faith, not tolerate your faith. Now, I'll also tell you, I do marry people that come from unequaled positions. But I always give that warning. And the reason why I still marry them is that when things go sideways, and they go sideways in every marriage, stuff happens, I would rather have them come to me than say, well, I'd 
Jason turned us away. I always want to be available to bring the hope of the gospel. In fact, I just did the marriage, the wedding, for the gentleman who gave his life during premarital class when we talked about this very issue. Faith matters to God, but there's more to this than just that. Here's the next part. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. There's another reason when divorce is permittable by God, and that's around abandon or desertion. Here's what I mean by this, and not every pastor agrees with me on this, but I think when we look at the heart of Jesus, this fits with Jesus. He's essentially saying if someone leaves, they're an unbeliever. Godly men do not leave their wives. They don't, and how do I know that? Because Christ, we're supposed to love our, li- our wives like Christ loved the church, and Jesus doesn't abandon his church. But there are times when it is okay to leave. There are times when abandonment happens, and here are some examples of those. When the covenant is being broken and it's not sexual, it's something else. Physical and emotional abuse of either a spouse or a child. In those cases, God says, if you need to protect, divorce is permitted. I'm not saying I'm encouraging it. Please hear that. I'm not telling you now are scot-free and you can divorce. I'm saying there are times other than sexual unfaithfulness when divorce is permitted. Physical abuse, emotional abuse of either you or child. Drug and alcohol abuse, gambling, pornography. When these things become unchecked, the Bible gives a way out if needed. But we need to stop living by the letter of the law and start living by the spirit of the law. The church sometimes has caused more harm than good in this issue because we attach shame when some people need to get out of a relationship because it's not healthy. I would argue that people can have affairs with all kinds of things other than people. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling, even hobbies. I had a, a friend of mine many years ago. He, was, he loved to fish. My pastor had told me he liked to fish, and I had heard he had a boat. And I said, hey, I heard you had a boat. And he said, well, I did, but I got rid of it. And I said, well, why did you get rid of your boat? And he's like, dude, I love fishing. He's like, well, the problem was I was fishing every day, sometimes until early hours in the morning. I would not be home. And my wife and I were having conflict, and it was struggling, and my marriage was suffering. And so we started seeing the pastor for counseling. And the pastor asked me, hey, do you love your wife? And he said, well, absolutely. He said, would you do anything to save your marriage? He goes, absolutely. And the pastor said, then sell your boat. And so he did. Because here was the thing. He had a love affair, not with another person, but with a hobby. Jesus says to do extreme things in extreme cases. Usually when I share this, particularly in discipleship settings, here's the response I get. Well, Jason, that seems extreme. Why didn't he just put it in storage? Or put it in the garage? Or just work out an agreement so he fishes less? What did Jesus have to say about this last week? If your eye caused you to sin, gouge it off. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Do you love your wife more than a hobby? Do you love your husband more than a hobby? Are you willing to cut things off that are getting in the way of the most holy and intimate relationship you are called to have apart from Jesus? If so, if it's getting in the way, get rid of it. And that's hard, but that's what love looks like. Sometimes people have to divorce not because they want to, but because it is the lesser of two evils, to protect themselves or their children. Permittable divorce is on grounds of adultery, sexual unfaithfulness, maybe emotional adultery. 
Paul permits divorce for abandonment or desertion, abuse. Now, I want you to hear this. If you are in an abusive situation, physically abusive relationship, get safe, please. You need to be safe. God cares about your safety and well-being. Did you hear that? If it's, there's addiction involved or abandonment, you are free to remarry. But there's a couple things that I want you to hear very quickly on this. Just because you can get a divorce doesn't mean you should. There are some reasons to make it work. And here are the three, and they're very fast. First, are they truly repentant? Have that, let's say an affair has happened. Has the person truly repented, cut off the relationship, says, I will do whatever it takes. Yes, by the law, you are free to divorce. But is that the heart of Jesus? If they're truly repentant and demonstrated it, not just with their words, but with their actions. Second, are they willing to get help? Counseling. Sometimes the best thing you can do for your marriage is to get counseling. Are they willing to go to accountability? Let's say they struggle with alcohol or drugs or gambling or pornography. We have all kinds of support systems, AA, NA, GA, SA. We even have Celebrate Recovery. If they're willing to get help, then God would say, do everything possible to save that marriage. Yes, you are permitted, but just because you're permitted doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. Lastly, and this is the hard one, and I want to make sure no one hears blame shifting. Did you play any part in it? If you've been working 80, 90 hours a week and your spouse has an affair, I'm not saying that it's justified that the spouse had an affair, but they did it because you were neglecting the relationship. It takes two. Does that make sense? And if you played a part in it, that's where you need counseling and you reconcile and you repent and you work on it together. Sometimes there's other things, contributing factors that lead into unresolved bitterness, trauma from the past. Divorce that is not permitted according to Scripture? Well, divorcing a person simply because they don't make you happy anymore. Think about how boring our tabloids would be if everybody followed this rule. Divorce is not permitted simply because you want a newer model or you fell out of love. Marriage is like farming. If you don't till the soil, if you don't plant the seeds, if you don't water it, don't be surprised when a crop doesn't come up. If your marriage is struggling, have you been tending to your marriage? The marriages take work. Holy marriages take work. They take intentional, loving, hard work. Now, I want to very fast, very quickly go through some divorce statistics because the world wants you and I to believe that, um, that Christians, the church, struggles with divorce the same way the world. But here's actually what the truth is. A more recent study was done by the Barner Group and uh, a Harvard-trained researcher, Shanti Felden, as well as another researcher, Dr. Brad Wilcox, and several other studies. And here's what they found. In church, the closer number of divorced couples in church is 33%. That's a far cry from 50%, isn't it? In that, 20 to 50% divorce for regular church members. So if you're a regular church attender, you are 20 to 50% less likely to divorce. Non-committed members are 20% more likely to get divorced. Active Protestant members are 35 less, 35% less likely to get divorced. Here's what this means. If you're involved in church, you being here right now is increasing the likelihood that you will have a successful marriage. How many of you know somebody whose marriage is struggling right now? Guess where they need to be? Right here. Being active in a church increases the odds. Now check this out. This is actually... Some couples don't like to hear this, particularly unmarried couples. 
Couples who cohabitate are 50 to 80% more likely to divorce. The world wants to tell you you need to live together to make sure you're compatible. In reality, you are causing more harm to the future of your marriage than the benefit of living together provides. God has called us to something holy. God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. If you are divorced, whether you got divorced for the right reason or a wrong reason, God loves you, but he still hates divorce. And the reason why he hates it is because divorce is the death of something, and we serve a God of life, not death. Divorce is the death of a marriage. Think of the people it impacts, couples, in-laws, children, friendships. We need to make sure that divorce is not more than it is, but also not less than it is. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. If you are divorced and remarried and you didn't do it for biblical grounds, you are forgiven if you've confessed it to Jesus. And we have a God who can redeem and restore even the most broken of things. Now, if you are divorced and not remarried or divorced and remarried, there is no scarlet D in the kingdom of God. You don't carry around. You are not defined by your divorce. You are defined by our Savior, the Deliverer. So if you are walking with that, if you're afraid that you're going to be judged, you are not. God just wants something holy and healthy for you. I want to leave you with a challenge and then what it means to be unconvenienced. And then I want to read a great quote. Whether your marriage is struggling or not, how can you care for it to make it stronger? See, we thought this was about divorce, but it's actually about marriage. And even if you're remarried, if you're remarried, how can you make sure that your second marriage is far healthier than your first one? What can you do? Is Jesus the center of your marriage or is something else? What can you do to divorce-proof your marriage? Now, here's what it means to be unconvenienced on this issue. Divorce is never ideal. Remarriage after divorce is still not ideal, yet we belong to a God who can and does redeem and restore all things, including your marriage or your second marriage. But we must do the hard work of fighting for, caring, and tending to the marriage that God has given us. Amen? I want to end with a quote here, and this is from Gary M. Burge, not the former counselor here. It's a theologian. This is what he said, and someone may need to hear this out there online or right now. Divorce is the tragic result of what becomes of humanity as it wrestles with sin and brokenness. Whenever a marriage fails, we should mourn it as tragic. But there should be no error so grave that it cannot be forgiven. No mistake beyond the reach of grace. Likewise, our God is a God of renewal and restoration. In some cases, this means restoring a marriage to its original partnership. In other cases, and I think of many, it means that remarriage is an opportunity for renewal and new hope. This is why churches and Christian institutions are mistaken when they indiscriminately deny the possibility of leadership positions or remarriage after men and women have divorced. Such position denies not only the spirit of Jesus' ministry, but also misunderstands the grace of God in a broken world. God can redeem all things. That's the God we believe in. Amen?